Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. Just a reminder that the sale that is going on on the Altitude Crime shop is only lasting for another couple days. So if you want to go to altitudecrime.com shop, that will take you on over to the Etsy page, and there is 20% off of everything until December 21st. Okay, so today, guys, we are diving right back into the second part of our story about the Ludlow Massacre. If you haven't listened to part one from last week, I recommend hopping over there first. I kind of laid the groundwork for what's going on in Colorado at the time, and we're going to wrap up today with the actual happenings of April 20th, 1914. This has been a big tale to weave, and I'm looking forward to telling you the rest of it today. So in the last episode, we talked about how there'd been a lot of ongoing conflict in Colorado over working conditions and access to different things for minors. Well, small conflicts would continue and bullets would be fired in both directions through 1913 and 1914. And there were some pretty violent strikes in the area during those two years in places like Trinidad and Walsenburg. And neither side was innocent of acts of violence in these cases. Governor Elias Amons did end up touring some of the mines, but chose to not call off the National Guard, even though he did say that the conditions were better than what he expected to see. At one point during these years, a 760-page testimony was handed to the governor by the State Federation of Labor regarding the mines, and he essentially dismissed it. His only comment was that the testimony was not sworn in. A lot of things would happen during 1913 that would continue to escalate the issues in Colorado. During this year, Louis Tikus was sent to Lafayette to speak to minors and was shot at by Baldwin false detectives. Minor Gerald Lippiet's killing would be ruled justifiable. We talked about him in the last episode. And even though he had drawn his gun first in this situation, and you can understand why it would be ruled justifiable, it still entrenched the miners into feeling like they were insignificant. In October, 50 strikers in the southern field were arrested for picketing. On October 17th, the Death Special, which was a Baldwin Feltz vehicle that had a machine gun attached to it, drove through one of the camps to intimidate strikers and killed one person that day. It would also end up putting 148 holes in one tent in the camp. On October 22nd, Mother Jones prepared to go to Washington, D.C. to get Congress involved with the strike. And that afternoon... A Dawson mine near Kiowa would have a fatal explosion. 325 men were trapped underground in the mine, and only 23 were taken out alive. On October 24th in Walsenburg, three strikers were killed after taunting the wife of a new scab that arrived to the camp. And shortly after these fall conflicts, a rail car full of deputies would arrive in Ludlow. The Greeks had gone to cut them off, and one guard was killed in the process. The deputies eventually retreated. At this point, the militia was brought into Ludlow. This included John Chase, who had taken part against the Cripple Creek Union fight in 1903 and 1904. There was also Major Pat Hamrock, who had fought Sitting Bull and the Ghost Dancers. 
The National Guard was prepared for a war in Ludlow, but sending in the National Guard actually made the situation worse. Many of the Guard had a skewed view of foreigners. A lot of the troops had fought in the Spanish-American War and Philippine Insurrection. These battles ingrained in them that people of different ethnicities were inferior to them. The job of the militia was supposed to be to keep strikers, guards, and new workers apart, but instead they tended to escort strikebreakers through the minor crowds to the mines, and they often turned a blind eye to the company-hired detectives who were often inciting violent actions against the miners within their camps. On November 4th, the militia searched Ludlow and found ammunition stocks at both the butcher shop and the bakery. Just a couple weeks later, on November 20th, a Baldwin Feltz man was killed on the streets of Trinidad, and Louis Ticas and two other organizers would be arrested as part of it and put in a Los Animas County Jail. The charges against them were pretty phony. Louis could have gotten out of jail sooner, as he was offered an early release if he could get the Greeks in Ludlow to stop the strike. Needless to say, he refused and was put back in jail. Through all of this conflict, John Rockefeller Jr. had not been to the Colorado mines since 1904. In November of 1913, the Secretary of Labor, W.B. Wilson, talked to Rockefeller. He encouraged him to get the unionizers and company into a meeting to hopefully stop the conflict in the coal fields. Rockefeller basically said that that was the Colorado governor and government's job. Rockefeller was really just too disconnected in this situation. Even during his testimony after the strike, he would use terms like capital, never referring to the humans that worked for him or their plight. What Rockefeller did know about the mines was just coming from correspondence from his CFNI officers. That December, on December 4th, there would be 42 inches of snow in Denver and the worst snow in Colorado for 30 years. The jailed unionizers, including Louis Tikas, slept with three inches of snow inside their cells. And remember, at the time, all of these strikers were living in tents in 42 inches of snow. On December 15th, Louis Tikas finally got out of jail. Within days of this, the Garfield County Vulcan mine had exploded and killed 37 miners. The union had been pushing for safety changes in this particular mine in the months leading up to the explosion, and their requests went unheard. The owner of the mine, E.E. E. Shumway, would compensate the families with $75 for funeral arrangements. In a turn of karma, Shumway would later end up passing away from inhaling the gases at the mine just a few weeks later. During the early winter months of 1914, 22,000 men and women would be out of work at the mines in Colorado and receiving government financial relief. In the end of January of 1914, Louis Tikas and Ludlow would take in 50 Bulgarians who'd been working in the Tabasco mines. They were making $1 a day, with 93 cents being their payment for boarding and the other 7 cents as transportation to the mine. They were essentially working the mines for free. Ironically enough, the Bulgarians and Greek were warring in Europe at the time that they joined forces in the strike in Colorado. To avoid losing any more scabs to the strike, in Tercio, the men's shoes were taken away from them at nighttime so that they had no means of escape if they wanted to leave the mines. On January 4, 1914, Mother Jones was arrested in Trinidad. 
But she wasn't arrested for long. She escaped the Denver hotel that detectives had taken her to and was back in Trinidad by January 11th. She was arrested again and put in the Mount San Rafael Hospital under guard. On January 22nd, the tent colony women protested Mother Jones's incarceration. The women made their way down towards the National Guard who was on horseback on the streets of Trinidad. When General John Chase kicked at a woman to get back... His horse got startled and he actually fell off and the women started to laugh and this really struck a chord and chaos rang out. The National Guard ended up riding towards them and swung their swords on a flat side at them, so not slicing at them, but kind of bopping at them and tried to grab any semi-weapons like flags that the women had in their hands. The Union would be enraged that their women were attacked and the militia embarrassed that they were rattled by women and made the first move. Mother Jones was only a catalyst. The women did the rest. At the end of February 1914, Governor Amons removed 200 militia from the southern fields. Keeping them there for such a drawn-out conflict had almost bankrupted the entire state of Colorado. As the National Guard troops were switched out, they were replaced with men who had also done work as mine guards for the companies. Bit of a conflict of interest here, right? On March 10th, union workers went to check out Forbes, Colorado. A scab had gotten drunk and hit by a train, but the coroner claimed that he was beaten to death. And who would be to blame? Obviously strikers. 19 men would be arrested for the supposed murder. Shortly after, the people of the Forbes colony went to bury a woman's stillborn twins. While they were gone, the militia ate the strikers' decent food and cut their tents down. Now keep in mind, in March, it's still snowing here in Colorado, and the strikers would need shelter from the weather. According to the book Buried Unsung by Zeus Papanicholas, when the militia found Emma, who was the mother of the dead children, who was in her tent and recovering, they told her, quote, in that case, they weren't going to tear her tent down. They'd just light it on fire, unquote. In one act of humanity in this entire story, another militiaman stopped them from doing so. The militia would stay around the camp and prevent strikers from rebuilding the camp. On March 15th, Mother Jones was released from her holding at the hospital in Trinidad. She was sent to Denver and was told not to return to the area where the miners were striking again. Needless to say, she was arrested in Walsenburg again six days later. The violence in Colorado would continue into April 1914. And on April 8th, the only female state senator, Helen Ring Robinson, visited the southern coal field. She left after two days but believed that what she saw was not really what was going on. A week later, she visited again but instead told no one that she was coming. And she was right. The situation was bleak. But the confrontation with the European immigrants was not the only race conflict boiling over on the coal fields. The black miners that had been brought in to work in place of the strikers soon got sick of the treatment from their white mine officers. And in Hastings, a black miner shot a marshal. The militia used this attack as another excuse to search the Ludlow camp. And this is a trend that kind of cracks me up through this whole story. It's like something will happen in somewhere that's not Ludlow. And it's like, I gotta search the camp. Gotta, gotta figure it out. Even though it happened 20 miles away, obviously we gotta search the Ludlow camp. In mid-April, John Rockefeller Jr. was asked again to meet to discuss the conflict in Colorado. 
Rockefeller refused, and it would be just days before the front rage erupted in violence. At one point, militiamen posted up at the rail station near Ludlow. They found a wire that was set up to trip them and the horses and cut it down, and of course accused the Greeks of setting it, which Louis Tikus denied. National Guardsman Carl Linderfelt tried to provoke Lewis, but Lewis was a calm guy. He didn't react. When he got no rile out of him, Linderfelt threatened to kill him. The following day, a search of Ludlow took place to look for firearms. They would find 35 rifles hidden under the tent floors and other colony hiding places. And while this sounds like a lot, it still was never enough to protect the unionizers. Given the growing conflict between the two, the State Federation of Labor asked the governor to remove Linderfelt from duty. His own officers even asked that it happen. And meanwhile, the Greeks begged Louis Tikus to leave before the conflict between the two got any worse. But this would not happen. On April 19, 1914, the Greeks at Ludlow would celebrate the Orthodox Easter. In the meantime, there was also a lot going on on the national stage. President Woodrow Wilson had threatened the dictator of Mexico to salute the flag or else. While the country waited for 6 p.m. to see what the dictator would do, the Greeks in Ludlow were having a grand time. The men had bought the women of the camp a very American gift, women's gym bloomers. Everyone got together to watch the women play a game of ball in their new bloomers. And then the men and women played a game together, followed by a dance in the one big tent in the camp colony. Militiamen did try to break up both ball games and the dance and did identify a few strikers later and beat them up. The following day, April 20th, 1914, would be an infamous day. Louis Tikus was told that four militiamen wanted to talk to him. They had claimed that strikers were holding a man that they were looking for, but Louis knew he had never heard of this man they were talking of. The militia had threatened to search the colony again if Louis did not bring them the man. Louis was wary of this, and he and Major Pat Hamrock talked on the phone. These two really had a good rapport and probably kept the conflict from Ludlow from boiling over a lot earlier. Hamrock wanted to meet, but Lewis did not want to go to the militia camp. He just did not feel comfortable. Hamrock forced his hand and they ended up meeting at the train depot. At the time of the meeting, militiamen were surrounding them, some with machine guns. The colony men ran up, and this kind of started the conflict. Lewis ran towards them, waving white handkerchiefs, but by then, gunfire had started. Rumor has it that the shots were fired by the National Guard, but there's never been an exact story to what really caused the first shot, but it was definitely bound to happen because the tensions were so high in the area. The shots fired would cause a battle that would last the rest of the day. There was a 10-hour gun battle between the guardsmen and the Ludlow colony. Louis Tikus called Trinidad for backup from the Union. At around 11 a.m., some of the Union men came from Trinidad. The militia shot at anything that moved, even chickens and family dogs. And later that afternoon, the militia got around 20 guardsmen as backup. There was a really brief break in the gunfire when a train headed to Pueblo went by, and the two factions were basically on each side of the train tracks. This allowed time for a number of camp residents to flee the area. In between the guerrilla-style warfare, miners and their families would retreat into the surrounding Black Hills. But eventually, the striking miners ran out of ammo and headed back to the nearby camp where the rest of their families still were if they weren't able to get away. 
13 tent camp residents were shot and killed as they tried to flee the camp. The National Guard followed into the tent camp and continued unloading ammo in the midst of women and children. The families would try to hide in the makeshift cellars that they had dug under their tents, but the cover would not last long. Louis Tikas and a few others searched the tents for people that had not gotten out yet and found about 50 women and children in hiding and got them to exit the camp. Later that evening, at around 7 p.m., the National Guard moved into the tent camp and started looting and poured kerosene on the tents and set them aflame. The tents were set on fire when the guardsmen thought the colonization was abandoned to prevent miners from regrouping. When they did find tent residents as they went through the camp, they pulled them out of the way of the fire. Or at least Lieutenant Connor and Linderfelt were doing this. They tried to calm down the others that were not doing this, but it was too late. To discuss a truce, Louis Tikas was to talk with Captain Carl Linderfelt of the National Guard. As was customary, Linderfelt had held a white flag. Louis arrived to the meeting unarmed. It is only eyewitness testimonies that tell us what happened next. But we do know that Linderfelt hit Tikas in the head with the butt of his rifle so hard it broke in two. According to the book Buried Unsung, Linderfelt had said that Lewis had ruined a perfectly good rifle when he hit him. Lewis most likely would have already have died from the blow or it would have caused his death, but the National Guardsmen also shot him. Lewis's death is always a question, as there's a lot of conflicting stories. Some people say that Lewis tried to run and was shot or was told to run and shot in the back or just executed right there. It's something that we'll never truly know exactly what happened. It would be found later that Lewis had been shot three times. After everything blew over would be when miners would find Lewis's body. It happened in the midst of everything else going on, and it took a while for people to figure out what had happened. The bodies of the five strikers killed and the one militiaman, Private Martin, who had been shot and beaten, would stay at the tracks for three days. But it would be even longer before the women and children in Tent 58 would be found. After the carnage, one cellar was found to hold three women and 11 children who had died of burns and smoke inhalation. These were Alacarita Pettigrone, Patria Valdez, and Cidi Costa and their children. Both Patria and Cidi were pregnant at the time. 25 people were killed in total, but the deaths of these women and children in the cellar of Tent 58 would be called from there on out the Ludlow Massacre. An autopsy would later determine Lewis's injuries. One bullet went in right below the shoulder blade between his ribs. Another had gone in through the hip and hit a vertebra, the stomach, the diaphragm, and exited out his ribs. And the third bullet also entered at the right hip. He had a bruised chin and an injury on the hand where he deflected Linderfelt's rifle butt. His cause of death was determined to be an internal hemorrhage. On April 25th, a funeral would take place for the dead women and children of the Ludlow Massacre, followed a couple days later on April 27th by Lewis's funeral, which saw an attendance of 2,500 people and took place down Commercial Street. The procession would end up being a mile long. The Ludlow Massacre did not come without retaliation. After the event, the United Mine Workers Association armed a 1,000 miners in the area, 200 men left the mines in El Paso County. 30 Greek marched to Colorado from New Mexico over Raton Pass. And 100 Italians from Denver were ready to march south. 
The miners organized and took over 200 miles of the eastern rocky slope, an area 50 miles long and 5 miles wide. They were spread throughout southern Colorado from Pueblo to Walsenburg to Trinidad, and they attacked anyone in opposition to them, including anti-union officials and strike breakers. The retaliation lasted 10 days. The miners also physically attacked the mines themselves, and six mines were shut down. Several dozen guards, strike breakers, and their families were barricaded in one mine with dynamite on the other side and were threatened that it would be ignited if they tried to leave. A mine near Aguilar was burned down. The Forbes mules were shot down. Japanese scabs were burned to death in their boarding house. The Empire Mine was set aflame. Near Walsenburg, strikers held off an entire force of National Guardsmen. Upon hearing the news, President Woodrow Wilson sent federal officers to crush the conflict and restore some sense of order. These troops were actually able to defuse the issue because they were impartial on the matter of the mines. The federal troops would end the conflict on April 30th. But the strike did not officially end until December 10th, 1914, just shy of a year and three months long. And it was not only America's coal industry that was affected by the strike, but it also meant the production of steel throughout the nation had slowed, as there was a steel mill in Pueblo as well. In the end, the miners would not get much of what they asked for through the strike, but it did draw over 4,000 new union members. This grouping of conflicts and the retaliation after the Ludlow Massacre would become known as the 1913 and 1914 Colorado Coalfield War. This multi-city retaliation by miners still stands as the bloodiest civil insurrection since the Civil War. But even at the immediate time, other incidents tend to overshadow it, like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire that killed 146 and is still one of the deadliest industrial accidents in U.S. history. News of the conflict would reach the national stage, but would really be overshadowed by the possibility of the U.S. becoming involved in the Mexican Revolution. The day after the Ludlow Massacre, USS Dolphin sailors were detained in Veracruz, and that kicked off the national conflict. While the retaliation of the miners was brutal, a lot of people didn't have a big reaction. After all, most of the people dead were just laboring immigrants. But the American public was disgusted by the attack on women and children and on miners by the company and National Guard. The New York Times, which was very anti-union, did even agree that the force used by the militia was not appropriate. So you may be wondering, Amelia, I'm digging hearing about this story, but why are we covering it on a true crime podcast? Not the normal content that we usually kind of have. Well, there was a legal review of both how the strike was handled and the massacre and the retaliation all surrounding 1913 and 1914. How the militia behaved was not constitutional, as martial law was never put into effect during the strike. People had been jailed without due cause, and residents had been searched without warrants. There were hearings at the level of Congress after the incident, but they never ended up in any kind of charges. Most of the trials revolved around the 400 miners in court hearings that continued into 1920, but none of the miners were ever convicted. There were also 12 National Guardsmen tried, but they were eventually exonerated by a court-martial. If you're a little unfamiliar with this, a court-martial is basically like a civil case, but for those that serve in the military. 
Captain Carl Linderfelt was eventually charged with arson, murder of one of the women in the cellar, murder of four strikers, the murder of Louis Tikus, larceny, and assault with a deadly weapon, but he was found not guilty of all of these charges. John Rockefeller Jr. disputed that there was any massacre at all and instead blamed the fighting on tiny factions of the group and that the tent deaths were due to technicalities like overcrowding. According to Ben Mox reporting for The New Yorker, one senator spoke during Congress's review of the incident and said, quote, I fear that unless society can in some manner reconcile these troubled conditions as between capital and labor, Mexico is not the only country that will be torn by interesting strife, unquote. But given all the attention to the conflict, it did not resolve mine worker issues. While the strike itself failed and the miners did not get the concessions they asked for, the incident created a conversation on the national stage about labor laws. Some of the women that survived Ludlow went on tour to speak at rallies about the incident and the deaths in the cellar. These were Pearl Jolly, Mary Thomas, and Mary Petrucci. They would explain how the older children stuck in the cellar would try to get out, but the hot ground would burn their fingers and force them back down into the smoky pit. Pearl Jolly would even try to reach at them and get them out of the cellar, but would have to retreat as she was being shot at by the militia the entire time. Overall, the conflict actually weakened the union in Colorado, as it caused the creation of company unions, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Greeks were often turned away from mines after this too, and not particularly liked by some of the union folks, as they really were the center of this conflict. John Rockefeller Jr. came out to Ludlow and talked to Mother Jones and some of the families of the miners in the process of rehabbing his image. He was willing to admit that he did not know firsthand about the mines and wanted to learn more about what was going on there. Mother Jones would sit down with Rockefeller to explain the struggle going on in Colorado and its long base in the history of the mines. The incident resulted in Rockefeller creating a company-sponsored union rather than have miners join the UMWA. The company union turned out to be pretty legitimate. The men involved in it made a lot of demands and they were actually able to make some progress and conditions within the company. Now, it's the best company union in the United States. While things were better, they didn't change a lot. Another outbreak of violent strikes happened in 1920 throughout the state. FDR's New Deal would finally turn things around by giving labor unions more power, but this did not happen for another 19 years after the Ludlow Massacre. Rockefeller Jr. would end up selling off his part of CFNI in 1940. This was one of the most violent labor struggles in United States history, and you have to understand that these miners sacrificed themselves for what would become safe workplace laws for all of us. It would eventually create things like a five-day work week, an eight-hour day, and boundaries on corporate expectations of workers. Now, historically, when something like this happens, people seek justice and want something done immediately. But no one was held accountable for any of the deaths, even if it was obvious outright murder. There is no town of Ludlow anymore. The site was declared a National Historic Landmark by the U.S. Department of the Interior in 2009. You can visit the site year-round, and the Ludlow Day ceremony still happens. People gather at the site of the camp, and a union rep will say kind words, and people take a moment to remember what happened there. On June 23, 2018, a statue was also built in Louis Tika's honor in Trinidad, Colorado. 
or as his actual name was, Elias Anastasio Spantidakis. The statue was created thanks to the foundation of Hellenism of America and donations by Greek Americans. The Ludlow Monument is a somber creation consisting of a small granite tower, a man, woman, and child, and the names of the victims. The monument at Ludlow was not paid for by public funds, but just union funds. The Colorado Coalfield Wars and Ludlow Massacre were nothing short of a class war, with intricacies just like those you see in civil rights or gender rights movements. So next time you clock out at 5 p.m. or pick up your paycheck, take a moment to thank Colorado miners. All right, guys, so that is probably one of the more intricate stories I have told over the course of the podcast. So let's get into some thoughts. Musing number one. So I said this a little bit in last week's episode, but there are a lot of players in this story and so much to unpack. And like I said, I focus some on the Greeks just because their story is told pretty clearly and they are a big portion of what happened at Ludlow. But really, these two episodes are just the tip of the iceberg. I could do an entire podcast on Ludlow and Colorado Coalfield Wars and Colorado mining labor issues in general. It is a huge piece of Colorado history and a very long piece of Colorado history. Musing number two. So I find it really interesting the responsibility of women in the striker camps because they really had to take their daily tasks seriously and really banded together, especially at the Ludlow camp. I mean, it was up to them to make sure that clothing and food and everything went as far as possible. And they really worked as a community to do so. And that really supported their men in a way that I think is really not always explained or appreciated. Musing number three. So this one is kind of a long range of thoughts about Louis Ticus. First of all, he had to know that when he walked in to negotiate what was going on, that he was most likely walking to his death. And while the killings of the women and children in the cellar of Tent 58 really became known as the Ludlow Massacre, Lewis really was a martyr of the cause. And in an ironic twist of fate, had Lewis Ticus gone home or stayed in Greece, his fate probably wouldn't have been much different. His brother and cousin were both killed in World War I. Additionally, Lewis really had a knack for communicating with people and really is always talked about as being this very calm figure. And he probably kept this conflict from erupting a lot sooner. Musing number four. While as workers, we have a lot of privileges now, the struggle continued in March 2003 when the monument at Ludlow was vandalized and the heads of the woman and man in the statue were removed. The reasoning was a statement for steelworkers in a strike that was going on in Pueblo. And there's been speculation that the vandalism was done by anti-union factions. So this is not a chapter that is closed in Colorado by any means. Musing number five. The big reason about why I wanted to cover this as one of our historical pieces is I am just infatuated with the energy in mining towns. Uh, Growing up here, it just is such a huge chunk of energy when you go to one of these places. And there's so many untold stories that are these combinations of hope of a new life in America mixed with this despair of being basically a cog in a machine. And if you haven't and you have the opportunity to go to places like Ludlow and Cripple Creek and 
Trinidad and Victor. I definitely recommend it. They're small, quaint little towns now, but there's just some really great energy and great history in every single one of these places. Lastly, I would like to make some recommendations. So I read two books in preparing for this episode, and I highly recommend both of them. The first was Buried Unsung by Aziz Papanicholas, which really talks about Louis Ticus and the Greeks and the Ludlow Massacre. It's a very heartfelt story, too, as Papanicholas really uses it as a way to explore his Greek heritage, too. And so it's both historical and very touching. The second is Blood, Passion, the Ludlow Massacre, and Class War in the American West by Scott Martell. This is really interesting because there are so many pieces that focus on the Greek portion of these conflicts that Martell really tries to tell the full story and really include a lot of different factions of what was going on at the time. So I definitely recommend both of these books. Another huge recommendation I would like to make is actually a local band Uh, to Pueblo that has written a short song about the Ludlow Massacre. They're a fantastic ska band. I'm a ska kid at heart. Their name is Last Real Hero, and I'll actually be tagging them in the Instagram post, so please check them out. They're a fantastic band, and I love that they, you know, do a song that's a nod to a very specifically Colorado historical piece like this. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for hanging in there for a two-part episode. It was a lot to unpack. You probably still have a lot of questions, and I cannot answer them all in the course of two episodes. I could probably have made this three or four, but we also want to, you know, grab some other content during the month. So thank you for listening in and make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. This will help you know if there's midweek content coming out. I put out something of an update on the get in stock case this week. And if you're not following or subscribed, you're not going to get that little notification when that stuff pops up. As always, reach out to me on social media at Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And source materials, as always, are available at AltitudeCrime.com. And while you're checking out those source materials, hop on over to the shop tab. That'll take you to the Etsy link, which currently has 20% off of all merchandise until December 21st. So just a couple more days to grab that discount before the holidays. Well, thanks so much for spending part of your week with me. And I cannot wait to tell you another story next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 38, The Ludlow Massacre, Part 2, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.